everyone, and welcome to Zine's Lesson Learned for HBO Leaders, Top Tips for Association Success from High-Performing CEOs. Without further delay, I would like to introduce our presenter, Aaron Roberts. Aaron Roberts is a partner at Zine, a management consultant and expert in business process re-engineering. Aaron enjoys working alongside not-for-profit executives as they lead their organizations to new levels of success. Prior to founding Zine, Aaron originated debt transactions in the securities industry for large corporate and government clients. A chartered financial analyst, Aaron also holds a master's degree in econometrics and a bachelor's degree in economics, but her previous academic accomplishment was her unexpected success in achieving first grade honors in grade nine algebra. Aaron's passion is food, eating it, cooking it, looking at it, talking about it, dreaming about it. Without further delay, let's begin. Aaron? Thanks so much, Anne. Well, welcome to the Zeem webinar studio. Uh, as, as you know, if you're listening to this, many Canadian associations are striving to reach the high performance level in one or more areas of their association. And this is a trend that we've been observing over the course of the last few years. In this webinar, I'm going to share with you some of the highlights of the high performance organization panel and roundtable that we recently hosted in Toronto with CSAE Trillium. Our panel consisted of five high-performance leaders in our sector, and they shared their successes and tactics in five of the elements of the high-performance membership organization. I was fortunate enough to moderate the panel, and I learned a lot. I'm going to be sharing some of that learning with you today. Now, those of you who follow our educational content, you know that Zine hosts a workshop or a webinar every month. Zine does consulting and association management for membership organizations of all sizes. The webinars and the workshops focus on topics of interest for leaders at membership organizations. And we host these events for two reasons. The first is to give you some relevant, valuable information that you can take back to your association and apply immediately. The second reason is to introduce you to Zine and to give us an opportunity to share with you the insights that fascinate us. When you're looking for the kind of help we provide, we hope you'll think of us. Let's talk about the agenda. We're going to spend approximately 45 minutes on the highlights, and then we're going to open it up to live Q&A. If you've got questions, as Anne noted, please make a note of them as we go along, and you can ask them live at the end using the raise your hand feature or you can text them to us by the chat feature that Ann talked about. I'm going to be moving really quickly, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but this recording and the slides will be posted to our Vimeo channel after the session, so you can review the material later if you wish. If you have questions as we go along, just make a note of them either on a piece of paper so you can ask them live, or put them directly into the chat box. Let me start off with full disclosure. First of all, this was a day-long session, and I've got 45 minutes to condense it for you, so I, there's no way I can do anything other than hit the highlights, and I've got to go pretty fast. I also want to say that this is my interpretation of what the panelists talked about. It doesn't mean I'm going to say it exactly the same way as they would have, and so for that, I have to uh, ask for your indulgence right up front. This is my interpretation of what people said. 
Also, I want to offer you, there were workbooks that we handed out at the, uh, at the discussion. If you are interested in workbooks about the high performance organization, these workbooks have the attributes of high performing organizations. They have symptoms that you can be aware of if you are not a high performing organization in one or more of the areas. And they also have solutions. If you're interested, just let me know and I'll email you one. Let's talk quickly about the high performance model because this is after all what this is all about. It all starts off with the revenue cost model and in this model you can see this is our business. On the left hand side we have elements of revenue and on the right hand side we have elements of cost. In the middle are the services that membership organizations typically provide to their members. Usually we have events, some form of professional development or certification, maybe some knowledge products, and stakeholder relations and issues management, which some people call government relations, advocacy, or lobbying. All of these things have elements of revenue and cost associated with them. I do have to point out two of the most important things about this model. First of all, on the right-hand side, you can see that stakeholder relations and issues management have a cost component, but they have no revenue component. This can be a huge, um, a huge, huge use of resources and it doesn't bring anything in the door from a money perspective. However, it can be a huge element of our credibility. The other thing, and perhaps the most important thing to point out to you about this model is revenue needs to exceed cost. You need to have money in the bank. You need that to invest in the future, and you need it to take you through the bad times. You must have money in the bank, and the whole point is not to break even at the end of the year. The whole point is to put something in the bank at the end of the year, because there's going to be years when you don't break even. The sustainability model is the foundation of the high performance model. And what we've observed over the many years that we've been working with membership organizations is that organizations that have all five of these pillars are inevitably sustainable. Yes, they can screw up, but it's a lot harder for them to screw up than organizations that have fewer pillars. You can see at the very bottom of this model, we have regional networks. If you're a national network or a provincial network, it's challenging to reach out and actually touch the people at the local level. By having regional networks, you have that grassroots connectivity and support that you don't have if you don't have regional networks. The other four pillars are exactly the same pillars that we talked about when we were talking about member services in the previous model. You've got your professional development and certification, events, knowledge products, stakeholder relations and issues management, and these are all elements of your value proposition. Remember, member services and member value proposition are not exactly the same thing, but member services very much contribute toward your member value proposition. If you don't have all five of these pillars, don't worry, don't panic. It may not be appropriate for you to have all five of these pillars, but do keep in mind that the fewer you have, the stronger the pillars that you've got must be. The high performance membership organization model has eight elements to it. It's got a backstage and a front stage. And today we're going to be talking about four of them, planning, governance, resource management, and member value proposition. Planning and governance are exactly what they sound like. Resource management is how well do you use the resources that you've got. That's volunteers, that's staff, that's money. Doing a good job of managing our resources is a huge part of being sustainable and being high performing. Your member value proposition is defined as being What's in it for me from the member's perspective? It is not a list of services, and that's where we so often go wrong. 
On our website, we say, you should join because here's all the list of services. No, really what we need to say is, you should join because here's the problem we're going to solve for you, or here's the thing you can't do on your own that you really, really want to do that we're going to be able to help you to do. It has to be stated in terms that resonate at a visceral level with your member and your prospective member. The backstage consists of the first five elements. This is the part that nobody sees unless it's screwing up. You need to work on efficiency on the backstage. Making this run like a well-oiled machine is what the backstage is all about. Because if you have friction in the backstage, it's going to come through the front stage and it's going to be it's going to make it more difficult for you to, to deliver on the key elements of your member value proposition. So this is stuff that needs to be working smoothly and well. Good processes, good people, strong accountability. These are the things that make up a good quality backstage. Your front stage, these are the things that people see all the time. Your stakeholder relations, your government relations, your advocacy, your PR, these are very much front and center things. As is your member value proposition, and your sponsor value proposition. They are not the same thing. In both cases, they are what's in it for me from the member or the sponsor's perspective. But I will say that the stronger your member value proposition, the stronger your sponsor value proposition. Regardless of whether you have sponsors or you want sponsors, it's still important to have a strong sponsor value proposition because at some point you may need that or it may be appropriate for reasons other than money to have sponsors. Maybe you're an HPO in one or more elements, maybe you're not. If you're interested, you can do your own two-minute self-assessment in one or all of the eight elements of the HPO. Just go to our homepage, click on the button that says HPO survey, and you will get your results immediately. Now, before we head into the first area of our panelist discussion, which is volunteer engagement, I want you to know that we used audience response units at this session. And one of the questions we asked was, does your association have a clearly articulated plan to recruit new volunteers? Now, consider how much we rely on our volunteers to keep our association's lights on and everything moving along. Interestingly enough, the vast majority of the people in the room said no, 64% we do not have a clearly articulated plan to recruit new volunteers. Interesting. So, Let's hear what Skip had to say about volunteer engagement. Skip McLean is the past president of Fenestration Canada. Uh, Fenestration Canada is, uh, works for the window and door industry, which is a highly re regulated industry that needs a lot of stakeholders slash government relations work. It needs a lot of manpower in that area. And Fenestration Canada has limited resources. So they not only needed to rely on their volunteers for the usual things like membership, education, all that kind of thing, but a lot of work on the government relations side. Um, Skip was a president during substantial change in Fenestration Canada, and during that time with a whole other, a lot of other things going on for the board, Skip and the board were also very, very instrumental in building up volunteer, the volunteer task force and engagement. What the results were, were much higher member engagement, uh, higher engagement from stakeholders and from media, uh, considerably more interest from sponsors, and as a result of all of those things, their AGM, which used to be a net cost center for them, um, turned out to be um, turned into a surplus generator. Now, what's behind this? Fenestration Canada at this moment has 93 committee members, and the vast majority of them are not on their board. 
are not on, on the board itself. Typically, each committee has at least one board member who is usually the chair. So there's a, a great connection between the committee and the board itself. But it, it, this is not you know, 12 board members doing, doing the work of 93 um, committee members. We've got a lot of engagement from the regular membership. And I can tell you, being at those committee meetings, these people are really interested and really engaged. One of the, th the things that Skip said was really important was we need to make sure what's being done and who's in charge of it. So this is all about accountability. What is the committee supposed to achieve? And make sure that once that's been decided, that that definition is clearly articulated to both the board and the membership. So in other words, we don't just say, hey, we're going to establish an education committee. Would someone like to be chair? We're very clear about what that education committee is there to deliver. Also very important, make sure that it's very clearly defined what is the chair's role. So when someone agrees to take on that chair, they know exactly what they're getting into, they know what their job is, and they know what their authority is. This is really critical. And this is a key thing that I got out of Skip's presentation. Make sure it's very clear what the authority of the chair and the committee is. It's also critical to get the right chair. It's not just the first person who puts their hand up. Think about it. What skills are needed in your education committee chair? And then who has those skills? And maybe at least as importantly, who's really interested in it? Because you might have the skills, but if you don't have the passion for this area, you're not going to really be able to deliver and generate enthusiasm as a chair. Skip also told us you've got to go out there and actively recruit. It's not just who puts their hand up, but think about who's the right person. Then go tell them they're the right person. Explain why you really need them and what they can accomplish, why they're there. And again, be very clear on what's going to be required of them. If it's going to be a lot of hours, make sure they know so they can get their employer on board and get their own affairs in order so they can make their contribution. He also talked about supporting, guiding them, and acknowledging them. And let's talk about support versus dictate. Skip told us you need to guide the chair, not the how. Once the what is established, give the committee and the chair some rope and let them run with it. Once they're out there and they're doing stuff, make very sure that you acknowledge them and you promote them. They need to get credit for what they're accomplishing. And it's not just thanking them for being the, on the committee or the chair, but for what they're actually accomplishing. Them, accomplishing. Make sure you acknowledge them and promote them so they're getting the industry recognition that they actually deserve. Next up was Carol Ann Burrell, who was about successful virtual teams. Now, this is becoming a much more interesting topic, I noticed, amongst associations over the course of the last couple of years. I don't know whether it's because people are more focused on costs or whether they're just thinking that this is a model that is maybe going to be more interesting to more people. So what we do with successful virtual teams is becoming a major source of interest. Carol Ann Burrell is the executive director of the Canadian Institute of Food Science and Technology. And she started off as a single person virtual team, a contractor and home base. These days, the institute has four regular contract staff plus extra people as needed. And it's not just the staff that are virtual. They have a national board from right across Canada. So the board has to operate from a virtual perspective as well, too. There are some obvious benefits for both staff and for the association themselves of a virtual team. It's not like this is a cost-free structure, but certainly there is lower overhead. It also makes recruitment a whole heck of a lot easier because you don't have to be concerned about whether a person's in Nanaimo or Cape Breton. 
doesn't matter where they're located, they can still be part of the team. And that gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of hiring. You do have the opportunity to have higher productivity from your team members because they're theoretically instantly accessible. And from the staff perspective, they've got way fewer costs. They don't have commute costs, they have lower wardrobe costs, lower meal costs. And if they're set up as a contractor, they have the opportunity, uh, if it's structured right, for tax deductions as well too. Carol Ann gave us a few tips here that I thought were very important. Two of the key things that she um, that really resonated with me is virtual does not mean invisible. You need to make sure that when there is a face-to-face -face meeting, you are out there front and center. People know exactly who you are, and ditto with uh, telephone teleconferences as well too. Also, beware of being highly responsive. When people know that you're in an office, they're fully expecting that you're there and that you're working. And if they send you an email and it takes you a little while to get back to them, they still have the comfort that you're showing up at the office for 40 hours a week or whatever the case may be. When you're virtual, for some people there's going to be a fear that, you're, that maybe you're not really working the whole time that you're there. And so being super responsive is really important. People need to know that when they send something to you, they're going to get a prompt response. And that gives them you know, the trust and the comfort that things are going as they expect. Caroline also focused on, don't worry about hours, focus on the output. It's not about the number of hours that your staff work, it's what they actually accomplish. And make sure that they're following the right processes as well too. Processes become particularly important when you've got a virtual team because you have no idea what's going on behind the scenes if they are not following the correct processes. Now, that includes cloud-based technology. You do not want your virtual team members to be using local software, storing things locally. Everything needs to be in the clouds so that everything, everybody has access to the current version of everything at the current time. You also need to manage risk. If things are being stored locally or used locally on a local machine, you risk losing that. And if you lose the person or you part on bad terms, you've got a very dangerous situation going on there. Carol Ann pointed out that when they got their association management system in 2004, it was transformational. Back in 2004, they had online membership renewal and event registration. And although many organizations have this now, it is still an area of, it's still a problematic area. There's still a lot of organizations that cannot say that all of their registration, no matter what it is, is online. So make the investment in technology. It's really important you've got the right technology to support your association and for your people who are working virtually. Keep in mind real estate as well, too. You need a place for the mail to come to. That should not be a person's home address. You need a place to meet when you're going to meet in person. So you need some kind of an arrangement with an off-site facility. And you need to make sure that you've got a place for storage as well, too. Caroline also pointed out, beware of insurance. Does the association's insurance cover, cover home-based workers? If it doesn't, then are you going to require that they, as contractors, have the appropriate insurance? Also beware of backup. If somebody calls in sick, it just means they're not going to be answering the phone and the emails today. So how's that going to work when someone emails them or phones them? What are your processes to make sure that they are covered when they are on vacation or there's an illness? Caroline also pointed out that you really need to have regular meetings, regular meetings via telephone and the occasional face-to-face -face meetings as well, too. These are important to keep continuity and, and trust open. It's very important that not only does the board and the membership trust in the model, but they also trust the staff. And when you're choosing staff, make sure you've got the right people to operate virtually. You need people who are very self-disciplined and they are self-validating. If it's 
the kind of people that need people around them to be validating their work on a regular basis, they're not going to be the right person to be a virtual team member. Carol Ann also pointed out two other really good points. Exceptional reporting becomes really critical for virtual teams. It's not just a question of doing the kind of reporting that you would expect to do when you've got bricks and mortar, but because everything's going on behind the scenes, you need to make sure your reporting is absolutely exceptional, that people really feel that they know what's going on. Your board understands what's being done, how it's being done, the risk is being managed, and no matter what you're doing, whether it's a telephone conversation, make sure you've documented what everybody agreed to so that there's no question of whether it happened or what we agreed to. So getting stuff down in writing is even more critical when you have a virtual team than otherwise. Make sure that with your volunteers, when you're talking, if you're thinking about going to a virtual team, make sure you address their objections up front and be absolutely realistic about what the impact is going to be on them. Clearly, they're not going to be able to just drop into the office. Make sure that they understand how it's going to make a difference in how they work. The other point that Caroline pointed out is your suppliers become even more important in a virtual team environment. You need to really be able to rely on them as partners and as, as part of your team. Now next up, the next topic was member value proposition and member engagement. And before we went into this section, and this section was run by Rick Firth and Joan Rattayek-Lang, we asked an audience response question, which may or may not surprise you. I what I'd like you to do as listeners, please close your eyes, listen to this question, and think about how you would answer it. On a scale of one to three, where three is highly confident and one is not confident at all, how confident are you that your entire management team and all of your board of directors can clearly articulate your member value proposition to a prospective member? Are you a one? not confident at all? Are you a three? Are you highly confident? Or are you somewhere in between? Well, our audience was pretty much somewhere in between. Only 18% of our audience said they were highly qualified, highly confident. Now think about that. You're talking about your management team and your board of directors, and your member value proposition is the whole reason why you exist. What this boils down to is really two things. Number one, Make sure you've got a clearly articulated member value proposition that everybody buys into. And number two, train, 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 and train again. This is an easily solved problem, but it's got to be a focus of your activity. Rick is the president and CEO of Hospice Palliative Care Ontario. And Joan Rattayek-Lang is the executive director of the Toronto Lawyers Association two um, associations whose members could not be further apart, and yet Joan and Rick have many things in common in terms of what they've accomplished and how they've accomplished them. Really, as I noted earlier, it all starts with a clearly stated member value proposition. And remember, this is not your list of services. This is what's in it for me. What pain are you solving for me as a prospective member? What are you giving me that I can't get myself and that I really, really, really want? And what are the key elements of that? This has to be defined in a way that resonates with a member, and lists of member services never resonate. You need a roadmap. Joan, in particular, told us you need to know where, you're, where you are now, where do you want to be, and what do you need to close the gap? What resources do you need to do? What are the strategies and tactics that you need? 
and what are your action steps to get from here to there. Joan likened this to a, a long hike that she took in Spain. And all of it is about putting one step in front of the other and knowing where you're going and how you're going to get there. One thing that was really interesting um, about what both Rick and Joan said is it's not so much about the industry or the profession that you are representing. You're not in the business of law. You're not in the business of hospice palliative care. Palliative care. You're in the business of the membership organization. That's your business. And sometimes you can get very caught up in the business of your members without getting fully focused on the business that you're actually doing, which is running the association. Now, what Rick did was he defined the elements of member service that fit into each pillar of the sustainability model. So what he did was he took the sustainability model, he made a few modifications in the pillars to, be, to resonate more with what their organization does. And then what he did was he aligned his entire team based on each of these pillars so that everybody, the entire team, knows exactly what they're focusing on in terms of these pillars. I thought that was a pretty cool idea. Joan also told us that she belongs to an organization that has been around for decades upon decades upon decades. And it's very easy to be caught up in the past, but members' needs change. Are you keeping up? When was the last time that you actually went out there and figured out what your members really need? If it was more than three years ago, then it's absolutely time for a refresher. And do not take your members for granted. If you've had a stable membership for the last two or three years, don't assume that's going to continue. You need to figure out what you're doing right, keep doing it, and figure out what you're not doing, and figure out a way to make it better. Next up was leadership support with Bill Shepard. And what we're talking about here is ARIA, the Ontario Real Estate Association, one of the things that they provide to the local real estate boards is helping their local boards of directors to um, have better governance training, um, to build up their confidence, to build up their knowledge so that they can do a better job for their uh, local uh, real estate associations. And one of the things that um, Bill and his team are responsible for is what they call um, leadership development. So it is their job to be constantly coming up with new ways to help train the local boards of directors to do their job of governance. What Bill pointed out, and Elaine LaChapelle as well, who's one of the key um, contributors to the content for the leadership, um, uh, leadership um, uh, the Association Center for Leadership Development, is that you need different media. Um, if you are a member of a local board of directors, you have, for the most part, you have a live facilitated training session annually. You have a whole series of webinars that you can take uh, from a level 100 to a level 300 in all, in all areas of governance. And you also have the access, access to what they call just-in-time videos. And these are very short videos that give you a quick hit about a certain element of governance that's important for you. Now, what Bill and Elaine told us, which I thought was really interesting, was it's really important to ask your volunteers what they're interested in. You know, how much effort are they willing to put into learning and getting better at what they do? And so what they did was they went out and they asked the chief executives of these local associations, how much time do you think your volunteers would be willing to, how many hours a year would they be willing to put in to training? And then they asked the uh, volunteers themselves, the board, board of directors, how much time would you be willing to spend? And here's really interesting results. The CEO said, I bet they'd be willing to spend one to three hours a year. 
The volunteers themselves said they'd be willing to spend three to five days a year. So sometimes you may feel that nobody's going to be willing to do this. They just don't care. Ask them. You might be wrong. Make sure that you're focused on what they need to learn as they evolve. If you look at the, um, at the uh, Center for Leadership Development, they've got one to 300 level so that people, as they evolve in their roles, can learn more and become their, their training can become more sophisticated. Also, they noted that building confidence builds governance. They gave us a couple exam of examples of um, chairs slash presidents of boards of directors who found themselves in challenging situations for their real estate associations. And they found that by taking the training, they had the confidence to be able to stand up and make the right decision and show the right leadership in that challenging situation. And without that training, they probably wouldn't have been able to do it. I don't know how many of you have experienced this, but I bet a lot of you have, where you've got a situation, the board has to show direction, and what you find is the board's just putting their heads in the sand. They just do not want to deal with it. They hope that they can just put off dealing with it until they're off the board and make it somebody else's problem. And that's a lack of confidence, and a lack of confidence comes from a lack of training and experience. They pointed out it's really important to have a budget for leadership development. You can't just assume that leadership development is going to happen if you haven't allocated resources to it. They also noted, be careful about what you call this kind of training. If you call it a conference, for example, it will be viewed as being much different than if you call it leadership development. They also noted, don't reinvent the wheel. There's lots of resources out there. Look for what's there and repurpose the ones that you can find. Um, TED Talks, for example, um, CSA has a fair, a fair amount of resources that are um, available at a relatively inexpensive price. You may have speakers that are willing to come in and um, speak to your uh, local boards of directors, um, possibly without any fee or with a small fee. They also pointed out, turn off the fire hose. And those of you, including me, who have um, helped train boards of directors, we have all been guilty of this. It's very easy to just go there for a full day and spew out everything they need to know about governance. And you know how much they're going to absorb? Not much. We're just all human beings. It needs to be served in chunks as needed. So one example Elaine gave was, if your board of directors is going into a strategic planning session, then have them watch a quick video ahead of time so they understand why they're doing a strategic planning session and why they're going to be looking at the mission and why they're going to be use, looking at the vision and what the deliverables are for a strategic planning session. That one minute hit can make all the difference between them being productive right out of the gate going into the session or not really knowing why they're there at all. Also, they mentioned give them time to use the knowledge before giving them another slice. So if you've got somebody going through the very basics of governance, give them the opportunity to apply the knowledge that they've learned at a few board meetings before you give them the 200 level. So in other words, give them time to bake it in before you start handing them more. What I'm going to do now is I am going to give you seven key tips for success that are a combination of what we heard from the panelists. They are a combination from what we've learned in working with dozens and dozens of members over the years. And some of the things that I personally feel are in the top seven of what we as associations really need to do more of in order to be successful. Number one, I've seen this over and over again, create effective, meaningful, financial reporting. And I'm going to tie this back to number four, which you can see on your screen, 
which is create and track meaningful metrics. You may call them KPIs, you may call them metrics, but these are really critical. Now, if you want to know more about that, on our Vimeo channel, there is a webinar there. Um, I believe it's called uh, Reporting to Your Board in Five Minutes or Less. That'll give you a, a much deeper dive into the whole reporting aspect of it, but also how to do it in a way that you're not going to overwhelm your board. I'm also going to be talking at the CSAE National Conference on October 27th about the same topic. So reporting back to your board, giving them quick hits of meaningful information, that's really critical. Also, your budget. Your budget shouldn't just be same as last year, add 10%, or figure out what we're going to spend and then you know, guess, at the, guess at what we're going to need for revenue in order to meet our expenditures. Make it meaningful. Now, one of the reasons, why, one of the reasons that, that gives you a meaningful budget is if it's tied to a business plan. Lots of organizations have a budget, but they don't have a business plan. These two things go together. You need a budget and a business plan produced every year. That budget and the business plan need to tie together, and the business plan needs to tie back to the strategic plan. Number five, create documented systems to hit your goals. If you've got strategic objectives, that's great. You're one step closer to success. But you need to have a documented system as to how you're going to get there. Who's going to do what? What are the steps? When do we need to have it done? Those things need to be documented, not just in your CEO's head. I would also encourage you to know what your HPO score is. Have a look at that very simple little online tool and get some ideas about where you are. If you're scoring very poorly, then chances are there is some low-hanging fruit that you can hit to increase your score almost immediately. If you're scoring pretty well, then you're, you may be at the top of the heap or there may be work to do. I would also encourage you, please, please advertise your successes. Don't keep thinking about where you're not at the HPO level, but when you get one step further, advertise it. Make sure your committees know. Make sure your board knows. Make sure it's in your annual report. Because that's the only way you can keep self-reinforcing that, you know what, we're moving forward. Make sure that everybody knows that. That's, that's as critical an element of your success as knowing where your gaps are. So what are your next steps? First of all, you need to know where you stand. What is your HPO score? What's the gap between where I am now and the HPO? You can use this quick little two-minute self-assessment, or if you want, you can contact us for a deeper dive. This is a much deeper dive. I would encourage you to do the online self-assessment first, figure out where you are in terms of the eight elements, and then if this, if this is something that you would really like to explore and find out where you are, where the gaps are, and how to close the gaps, this will help you to do that. Now what I'd like to do is I would like to open this up to live questions. You can either use the um, raise your hand feature, um, and Anne will unmute you your line for you to ask the question, or you can use the question slash chat feature to text the question to Anne, and she will ask it on your behalf. Anne, do we have any questions? Thank you, Erin. Yes, we do. Um, the first question that we have here is, you suggested that associations should track metrics. metrics Sorry, what metrics should we be tracking? Well, the absolute three most basic ones that you, there's just no question about whether you should or shouldn't be tracking them. They're absolute necessities is you need to track your member attraction rate, you need to track your member retention rate, and you need to track your member satisfaction rate. Your member attraction rate is at what rate are you attracting brand new members in each year? Your retention rate is what percentage 
of your existing members are you re are you are you retaining? And on that um, on that Vimeo channel in five minutes or less, there are some. Uh, I, I'll show you on the slides exactly how to do those calculations. Member satisfaction is usually done through a member survey, and then you might be asking a question. For example, on a scale of one to five, you know how satisfied are you? Where five is deliriously happy and one is not at all satisfied. Um, just keep in mind when you are tracking your satisfaction rate, what is satisfied? You know, on a scale of one to five, does satisfied include three, four, and five? Or does it just include four and five? Because when people say they're satisfied, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to renew. So anyways, in order to answer that question more succinctly, at a bare minimum, you need to be tracking member retention rate, member attraction rate, and member satisfaction rate. And do we have any more questions? Yes, we do. The next question is, in the leadership support section, you talked about creating videos and webinars as well as live facilitated training. What if you're a smaller association? How do you find the resources to do this? Okay, that is, that's a really good, really good question. If you go on to, uh, onto the ARIA website and you look at some of the stuff that they've got, you'll be really, really impressed. And it's easy to say, well, you know, that's ARIA. They've got tons of dough, tons of staff. You know, I couldn't possibly do anything like that. Well, first of all, um, let's keep in mind that there is free stuff out there. Not that you heard me say this, um, but there are videos that are available on the ARIA website that anybody can go and look, look at. Also, let's keep in mind what ARIA mentioned. There are, um, there are TED Talks. There is um, relatively in inexpensive CSAE materials. It will take time, though. I, whether you've got money or not, just to assemble the free stuff that's out there into a good um, set of best practices will take some time and resources, but I can tell you it is so worth it. Once you see your board of directors clicking along on all six cylinders and really doing well, really asking the right questions, really making intelligent decisions, it so leverages the resources that you've got. You'll find that even with very limited resources, if you've got your board firing on all cylinders, it is an enormous resource um, for the organization itself. And do we have any more questions? No, Erin, those were the only questions we had at this time. Okay, well let's talk about some of our upcoming events. Um, I want to thank you, our listeners. Um, I want to thank our HPO panelists for sharing their wisdom and experience with us last month. And for those of you who were at the session, you not only had the opportunity to hear from the panelists, you had the opportunity to learn from your peers at the roundtables as well, too. So as I mentioned earlier, I do hope that later this month you're going to join me at the CSAE National Conference. I'm going to be talking about effective management reporting for smart people who hate numbers. Keep in mind, not all of your board of directors swoons with excitement about a set of financial statements. Some of them actually get sick to their stomach looking at numbers, and that's smart people. A lot of smart people fit into that category. Um, uh, in November, I'm going to be interviewing Rick Firth, who you may recall was one of our HPO panelists, and I'm going to be talking to him about attracting and retaining members. This is something that Rick has been very, um, very successful at. It's a free event, but it's invitation only, so if you're interested, um, please email me. Thank you very much, and I look forward to you joining me at our next webinar.